Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Aaron and I are here to talk about waterproof gear, specifically waterproof gear for mountain biking. So we're going to be talking about jackets and shoes and socks and basically anything you can get to waterproof your body for going out on the trail. So Aaron, I know you did some research about the history of waterproof gear. Can you walk us through that history and talk about some of the challenges of the various solutions over the years? For sure. I actually uh, had fun researching this topic. Didn't realize uh, so much went into this. So obviously, probably the earliest form of waterproof gear was animal skins. So, you know, you kill an animal and you skin it and you then wear that skin. So, you know, the animal's hair and the leather itself, the skin will help keep you warm and dry, but obviously it's, uh, you know, it's pretty rudimentary. You're not going to be mountain biking in a uh, fur jacket. At least most of us won't be. Yeah. It's not, not very fashionable. And also I imagine it's heavy and potentially kind of stinky. Definitely could be. And then you move into the Inuits actually used seal and whale intestines uh, and they stitched those together to make a garment and they sealed the holes with like glue made from rendered animal bones. So you can find pictures of these jackets online and they're see-through because they're intestines. So it's such like a thin membrane. So it's this kind of odd looking quilted intestinal jacket, but they actually say that that was kind of like the precursor to Gore-Tex because it's, you know, your intestines, they obviously keep the rest of your body from getting into your test intestines, but they need to, you know, you need to be able to absorb nutrients through the skin. So a animal intestine jacket was waterproof, but also breathable. Yeah. And then you also, you know, you start to get into like in the 1500s when they're coating fabric with other materials. So whether that be rubber that they did in South America and China, there was oiled silk, but really you started to see a lot of waxed cotton from um, sailors. So basically what you do is you, you know, you soak cotton fabric in wax and the wax gets in there, fills in all the pores. So it's, it's going to, the fabric then won't absorb water, but it'll also repel water at its surface. But the problem with that is if you've ever picked up a waxed cotton jacket, it's pretty heavy, uh, so definitely not the best for mountain biking and not that breathable either if you're really going to be really active. Moving into the 1800s, the Scottish chemist Charles McIntosh, he figured out how to bond two pieces of fabric together with rubber dissolved in naphtha. So these are the first rubberized jackets that we had. So these are highly waterproof but not breathable at all. You know, if you had a rain jacket as a little kid, just one of those cheap rain jackets, you're probably very familiar with this. And actually in the UK, they call rain jackets Macintoshes after Charles Macintosh. Mm -hmm. So fun little history fact there for you. Yeah, so again, heavy, waterproof, but not breathable, so not an ideal solution. Moving on from there, you have a material called gabardine, which was developed by Burberry, the clothing company that you may be very familiar with their Burberry plaid. So gabardine is gabardines is a tightly woven wool, and they used it in World War One and on trench coats. So trench coats, while we think of them as like you know a fashionable item, they were actually called trench coats from trench warfare in World War One. 
the problem with gabardine is it's not entirely waterproof. It can soak through. So if you're just in a downpour, eventually the entire material will become soaked. Uh, it was expensive. Obviously, wool is not the cheapest raw material, and it's also not that plentiful. So, again, not the best solution for mountain biking. But it is breathable, I guess, right? A little bit? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Wool's excellent for, for that. I mean, that's why you still see you know, people wearing wool jerseys today and there's actually been a lot of advancements on that front as well in terms of like weaving wool with other you know synthetic threads to kind of get the best of both worlds so moving into the early 1900s you have vinyl uh vinyl is thin it's light it's flexible it's waterproof and it's very cheap but if you've ever had a cheap poncho at a baseball game or something you know they're not breathing not breathable at all so as long as you're sitting still they're okay but as soon as you start to move around you're going to be you're going to be sweating like crazy because you're basically wearing a garbage bag you know you can still you can still find a cheap vinyl rain jackets anywhere you go i mean you know you probably pick one up at a gas station if you need to in a pinch so that leads us into the late 60s and the discovery of gore-tex yeah so for mountain bikers and for most outdoor enthusiasts these days, you know the the idea of a waterproof, breathable membrane uh, is is really important, and that was all started in 1969 with the discovery of Gore-Tex. Uh, Gore-Tex is actually made from a material called polytetrafluoroethylene (PTFE). Nailed it. Yes, which was actually invented or discovered by the DuPont company. And it's the thing that that's the material that's used in like Teflon coatings and things like that. So it's kind of like a plasticky material. And basically Wilbur L. and his son Robert W. Gore discovered that if they pulled apart polyethylene rods, sorry, PTFE rods, that the rods would expand a lot. So they would expand like 800 to 1,000% longer than their original size. And when they did that, they realized that they were introducing these micro, tiny little pores in the material. And it turns out that those micro pores are small enough so that water droplets can't pass through them, but vapor and air can. So these these little pores, I mean, you have to look at it under a microscope to actually see them. They're one twenty thousandth the size of a drop of water. And a lot of the innovation that went on with this was figuring out just the right amount of stretch to take the material and stretch it the right way um, and at the right tension to get those pores at the right size. And so you can you can do it if you only stretch it a little bit, you're going to get smaller pores. If you stretch it out even more, you're going to get bigger pores. So over the last few years, there have been other companies doing breathable waterproof membranes, um, and they'll claim that their pore sizes are bigger or smaller than, you know, whatever Gore is using these days. But really, it's the, it's the same material, just slightly different way that they're processing it. But anyway, if you've ever seen a piece of Gore-Tex, it's, it's a piece of fabric. It looks a lot like a thin white trash bag, and it feels kind of rubbery, like a, like a really thin balloon or like a surgical glove. So it's not something that you want like right up against your skin. So it's usually bonded to another material like polyester or nylon. And often if you buy like a Gore-Tex jacket, you're not going to be able to see 
the actual membrane because there's fabric on either side of it um, that's covering it up. So a lot of times when you hear that Gore-Tex or any other membrane is breathable, you might think that you could, you know, like make a face mask out of it or something and like actually breathe through it. But that's, that's not the case at all. You would suffocate quickly <laughs> if you try to breathe through Gore-Tex. Um, so it's not, it's not super breathable, but again, it does allow, you know, gases to go through it. So the patent actually expired. I was surprised to read this. The patent on Gore-Tex expired in the early 2000s. So it's, been a while now that other companies have been able to make their own breathable waterproof membranes using PTFE. And right now there are a lot of competitors on the market, including Kokona, Event, um, and others. And so you might see like a little icon on a jacket that says it's Event or it's Kokona or it's Gore. Um, but these are all really the same thing, just slightly tweaked in different ways. But yeah, competition is good for consumers. Yeah, Jeff, as you mentioned, the uh, the Gore-Tex material itself is super thin and it's actually pretty fragile. So that's why another reason that you have to bond it to another material or fabric. So when you go and see, you know, a red jacket hanging up and it says it's Gore-Tex, that red material on the outside is not the Gore-Tex. It's actually the the membrane that's on the on the inside of the jacket and. There's basically three different jackets. You have a two-layer jacket, which is an outer membrane with Gore-Tex on the inside, and those are are good because they can be, you know, they can be very light, but they can also kind of feel not super awesome against your skin. Like Jeff said, the Gore-Tex itself kind of feels like a a balloon or a you know a surgical glove or something like that. So it's not not a great feeling. A two and a half layer jacket is when they add some texture to that inside membrane. So they'll oftentimes do like a dimple or something like that, just so it it moves a little bit easier across your skin. And then you have three-layer jackets, which are the most expensive, and that's when you have the outer shell, and then you have the Gore-Tex in the middle, and then you have some other sort of fabric on the uh, or material on the inside. So those are... Those are the most expensive jackets, obviously, because there's more material and they're harder to manufacture, but that's considered a three-layer Gore-Tex jacket is considered the the cream of the crop. Yeah, and, and speaking of the fragility of the Gore-Tex and, and also the expense of some of these garments, um, you know, Gore has always been known for having a lifetime guarantee on their garments. So, you know, if you bought something in 1969 and it's not waterproof anymore, you know, either because the membrane got torn or, you know, it's just worn out or whatever, um, they will replace it. No questions asked. And, uh, they, they have stories about people who have turned in some really, really old gear and gotten brand new stuff. So, that is that is part of the expense in manufacturing it and also supporting it sort of long term. So beyond choosing this waterproof, breathable fabric, what else needs to be done to make a garment waterproof? Obviously, there are things that are going to introduce challenges to making stuff waterproof. For sure. Well, one of them that you're going to need to do is uh, you're going to need to coat the outside of the jacket with um, some sort of water repellent. So a lot of times you'll see something that says, you know, this garment has a DWR finish, and that means durable water repellency. And that's basically a coating that's either sprayed on or brushed on 
and that helps the water bead and roll off the jacket because obviously the more water you can keep off the jacket, the less chance of it soaking through. So that's one thing that you need to do to the outside of the jacket. That's also something that can, in many cases, be reapplied, and that's something that a lot of people forget. You know, you may think Gore-Tex isn't working anymore, but it just could be that you need to freshen up that DWR layer. Yeah, and and what's interesting is I've talked to the folks at Gore, and um, they say a lot of times they'll get a garment back someone will send it in and say hey it's not working anymore you know i can feel the rain you know getting through the jacket and they'll test it and they'll find that the rain isn't actually getting through the jacket but it's that outer layer that's getting soaked and when you're wearing it it feels like you're wet because the the fabric starts to kind of conform to your skin and it's it's obviously cold and yeah, it feels wet, but it's not actually wet on the inside. And that they, they call that wetting out. So a, a jacket is wetted out if the outer layer gets soaked. Right. So also, you know, on a jacket, you've got, you've got seams and you've got stitching. So that's a place where you, you could introduce water into the inside of the jacket, which is not what you want out of a waterproof jacket. So there's a couple different ways you can go about it. Tape seams. So this is after the garment is constructed, you put a layer of tape, you know, applied along the seams. It's generally inside the jacket itself. And then you add a little bit of heat to make the tape stick and boom, now the seam is sealed. So it's going to cover up any uh, little perforations from the needles. It's kind of on the newer technology end, I think we'll see more and more of this, is welded seams. So that's where there's no needle at all. They join uh, different materials together with heat and pressure. So, you know, no needles, no holes, you know, no need to go back and tape it afterwards. And then also, you know, you've got zippers on most garments, on jackets and pants, etc. So the zippers themselves are built on a strip of waterproof fabric, and then that's somehow bonded to the garment, whether that is sewn on and then they tape the seams or, you know, welded on. Um, but the teeth of the zipper are then joined in a way that doesn't let the water through because most standard zippers, if you look at them, there would actually be room for water to work its way in right through the middle of the zipper. And that's also why a lot of jackets and stuff have like a storm flap over the zipper. That's just to act as an additional barrier to keep water out. Yeah, clearly there's a lot of tech and a lot of thought has gone into making garments more waterproof, Uh, but they're still not perfect. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, especially with these breathable fabrics is that they don't always work very well in humid conditions. You know, the whole idea is kind of based around the fact that the air inside the jacket, i.e. the vapors coming off your body, uh, are going to be more humid than the air outside of your jacket. So the idea is that that humid, stale air gets out of the jacket um, and then, you know, sort of dries out. But I've found that it doesn't really work that well here in the southeast where it's humid pretty much year round. I usually just end up sweating through a Gore-Tex or any other breathable jacket. And honestly, I'm not really sure how it's supposed to work because when it's raining, it's usually going to be pretty humid out. So I don't know if others have experienced that, but it definitely seems like a challenge to me. 
So we've been mostly talking about jackets here when speaking of waterproof gear, but there are other uses for these breathable waterproof membranes, particularly in shoes and socks for mountain biking. And this is an area where I've always thought there's a lot of opportunity given that mountain bikers um, will sometimes will ride in wet conditions, but a lot of times it'll be a dry trail, but we'll do creek crossings or um, you know, ride through wet grass or things like that to get our feet wet. But there haven't been a lot of choices uh, in terms of shoes and socks. Why do you think that is, Aaron? Well, like you said, it's kind of a very specialized piece of gear. And, you know, mountain biking stuff is already fairly specialized. So if you're buying a pair of Gore-Tex shoes, you're really going going to want to be sure that you get your money's worth out of them. And if you're only using them a couple times a year, maybe you can't really justify the expense, you know, especially if you can get some much more inexpensive shoe covers or something like that to get you through those few days a year where you may be riding in the rain. There are companies out there that make, I know Shimano has probably been making a Gore-Tex shoe longer than anybody. But it's also, I think the the Shimano one is good because it has like a little neoprene boot over the top of it. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, if you're just wearing like a standard trail shoe, you can have the, you know, you can, the shoe can be Gore-Tex and waterproof. But if you don't have anything to keep water from splashing up over the side and down into your ankle, then, you know, it doesn't really do you any good. Also, I think in terms of the socks, it might be just a harder to manufacture because if you think about it, Gore-Tex, the membrane itself is not very stretchy, you know, so you can't, um, you know, if you think about most jackets and other garments, they're going to be fairly rigid structure. Um, it's not going to be like a sock with a lot of, you know, spandex or lycra or whatever in it that, that makes it very stretchy. So I think that's probably one of the limitations for socks. I mean, you could go with a neoprene sock something along those lines, but then, you know, your foot's probably going to sweat out and neoprene is quite thick. So it's going to add a lot of bulk and maybe your shoes won't fit so well. Yeah. You're just going to end up with your foot in a bag of sweat by the end of the <laughs> ride, which is, is not very appealing. At Interbike this year, I did see a waterproof breathable sock from Seal Skins, um, which I'm interested to test. I, I'm skeptical myself, honestly, because I just know how much I sweat in a Gore-Tex jacket and feet tend to tend to run even hotter in a lot of cases for me. So yeah, that stuff is out there. But I think like you said, there's just the fact that water is going to pour in over the top of your shoe. So that makes it tough to really justify waterproofing uh, the rest of it. So one other limitation or thing that I've wondered about is what is the best application for waterproof gear for mountain bikers? You know, most of us have been taught that if it's raining or the trails are wet, we're not supposed to be riding. So are there situations where waterproof gear makes sense for mountain bikers? I would say so. If you live in the Pacific Northwest or a lot of the times the Southeast, the winter, it's just it's going to be raining and it's either ride in the rain or not ride at all. Obviously, some trail systems are closed when it's raining, but not all are. So, you know, you should definitely know the trails in your area and whether or not they're open. But beyond that, if you live somewhere or, you know, you're way out in the backcountry and you don't know if it might rain on you or not, if you're in 
high elevation, the weather can turn on you and the temperature can drop and it can all go to hell pretty quickly. So having a waterproof jacket is excellent for emergency situations where, you know, I mean, you can be riding in Colorado and it could be 75 degrees out and then all of a sudden the afternoon storms roll in and it drops, you know, drops to 40 and it's pouring rain and you're at the top of a mountain, you're going to be freezing your ass off. So it's uh, definitely good to carry uh, a waterproof jacket as a, as a backup. Yeah, I agree. The emergency use seems to be a big one for sure. Um, and then I, I also find because these waterproof jackets are, are often so hot and steamy when I'm wearing them, I find that if it's really cold out, they work well as sort of an insulating layer or more of like a windbreaker style. So I get a lot of use out of my jacket. I've got a Gore Bikeware waterproof jacket that I picked up several years ago. Um, and it's held up great. And it's like one of those things that I use many, many times during the year. So it's definitely a good piece of equipment to have. Well, great. This has been a really interesting and enlightening discussion about waterproof gear. If you want to learn more about jackets for mountain biking, we have a buyer's guide for that coming up soon that you'll want to check out on the website. Thanks for joining us this week. Talk to you again next week. Peace. Peace.